0: This is The Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Broge. Dr. Broge is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogie.
1: Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line, so pleased that you can be with us. Uh, we are broadcasting a little bit under power today, but it's recorded, and so... For our friends who uh, look forward to listening to it, who are not listening through the internet, at WAGP.net, of course it's recorded and you'll be able to hear it. But as usual, we're here for the next hour taking people's questions. So if you have a particular theological, biblical question you'd like to ask or maybe some issue that you're facing in your Christian life or your local church ministry, if we can be of help by God's grace, we will respond with God's Word. The number again is 843-525-1859. 525-1859 is the South Carolina 843 exchange. And then if you want to email us, which we're happy to receive questions that way, you can email us here directly into the studio and the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at wagp.net. All right, with that said, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll begin.
0: Well, you talked about the internet, and I'm sure that's the only way Samantha from Fairbanks, Alaska is listening to us. Uh, she writes, Hi, Dr. Brogy, I would like to know your thoughts on modern-day prophets and apostles. Is it biblical and also just prophecy in general, if that's something that can, can and does still happen today?
1: Well, those are great questions, Samantha. And and by the way, she's obviously in Fairbanks, so the only way she can listen is through wagp.net. And some people who are listening to me now may not be aware that we do broadcast 24-7. So I'll just give that commercial, and then I'll go to her question here. I think it's important, one, that you distinguish between the office of prophet and the uh, gift of prophecy, along with the office of apostle and the gift of apostleship. There are no apostles today in terms of the office, because to have served in the office, A, you had to have been personally selected by Christ, which is impossible today. Two, uh, you had to have seen him in his resurrection body, which is impossible today. And if A and B were true, then C would confirm it, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, that you'll have the signs that only a true apostle could do. And so Paul reminded the Corinthians who said that he was a Johnny-come-lately and not a true apostle. He said, look, I have all the marks of a true apostle. I do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only a genuine apostle can do. Uh, the, the word apostle, apostolos, just means a sent one. And it's kind of like the word Deacon it can be used in a technical sense or a non-technical sense in a technical sense uh in 1st timothy 3 for instance he delineates the requirements for the office of deacon in a non-technical sense uh jesus said he that must he that would be great among you must be the deacon it's the same word or the servant of all so usually in our english texts We differentiate between the office and the general usage of the word deacon as a servant by using two different words, though I will say that in many countries of the world where I've visited and preached, uh, they use the same word and the reader has to figure it out. But it's usually pretty obvious. So there are apostles today in that there are sent ones who go, say, as missionaries to establish local churches and foreign lands or in different even parts of the United States where there's needed church planning. But there are no actual apostles. In terms of the uh, office of prophet, uh, that's closed because the canon of Scripture is closed, so there's no need for it. And in terms of the gift of prophecy, there were two dimensions to it in the early church. There was a foretelling dimension, and there was a foretelling dimension. And so in terms of the scripture being closed, Jesus said, I testify, or John wrote, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. So, while the gift of prophecy did have at one point a predictive expression in the early church, good example agabus acts eleven uh, when the canon of scripture was complete, uh, the predictive sense was gone, but there's still an edification sense, and so, in first Corinthians fourteen, he talks about prophecy in terms of edification and exhortation in Consultation. But this is a really important question you're asking because there's a lot of would be prophets in our day, and ignorant Christians sometimes listen to them. And of course, most cults are always built on some dream, some vision, some additional revelation beyond the scripture itself. And so the scripture is completed. And of course, you know, Roman Catholics would argue no, it's not. Uh, There is ongoing revelation. And so when the Pope speaks in an official capacity, ex cathedra, it's on the same level as Scripture itself. Now, the Pope spoke just a couple of days ago saying that the Genesis flood was a myth. And he quoted experts saying that it was a mythological event, did not happen. But he argued that if we are not cautious and don't pay attention to global warming, that God could flood the entire world. Well, again, God promises he'll never flood the entire world. Again, uh, he has put a rainbow in the sky every time we see one. It's a reminder of the promise that he made. It's recorded in Genesis. In addition, it's not a myth what took place through the worldwide flood. Jesus taught it to be a historical event. So the Pope is wrong. But in fairness to him, he was not speaking ex cathedra in an official capacity. Uh, But there are so-called evangelicals that have these, you know, Mm -hmm. visions and Um, you know, text messages from God, Beth Moore would be a classic example where she, you know, says, well, God said to me, and then she goes, you know, let me, Beth, I want you to do so-and-so and and say such-and-such, and and, and that's really dangerous. Another book that was done in a similar vein was by Sarah Young. She wrote a very popular book called Jesus Calling, And she affirms in the introduction to that book, and I've written an assessment on it. It's at searchtheScriptures.org. I know it got thousands of downloads, and maybe that's why they took it out of the current editions. I don't know. But the original introduction is not there anymore, but she hasn't changed her view. Uh, But she would argue in the introduction to Jesus calling, well, you know, I know that God communicates through the Bible, but I yearned for more. And, of course, the challenge in our day is not so much the inerrancy of the Bible, though that has always been a challenge, but now the sufficiency of the Bible. And, you know, these Christian men and women who say, well, you know, God spoke to me in his still, small voice. And we must never forget that the still, small voice that Elijah the prophet heard in 1st corinthians Corinthians—I mean, First Kings 19 was not some internal, inner impression— he literally, audibly heard God's voice, not in his mind, but externally in a quiet wind. Uh, and again, this was before the canon of Scripture was completed. So uh, I, I would just caution anyone who meets some so-called believer who is adding to Scripture. Uh, in the Revelation, John argues that that is a mark of an unbeliever people who will not be a part of the tree of life. And I'm not saying Beth Moore has crossed that line, but she's really on some dangerous, dangerous ground. Anyway, good question from Fairbanks, Alaska. We appreciate it. Let's go to Alberto, who's waiting. He's calling from Savannah, Georgia.
0: Go ahead, Alberto. Turn off your uh, radio so you don't get any feedback, okay? All right. Well, good morning, Dr. Carl Brogie. And Chris, Chris, what, uh, Rick Forstner. That's okay.
1: Um, yeah. Forchner, Rick, I forget, I forget his, his name in sometimes too.
0: And I was hearing you say about, you know, man is made in God's image and all that. That's true. But then you said that man was created in Christ's image. And I have to disagree because how could you allow some pedophile rapist, murderer, a, abortionist, doctor, criminals, uh, compared to the glorious Jesus who is his image is impeccable pure to lower it to some these people say that, that their image according to his image I don't agree with that you know cause like well you, said, like I, the, I understand
1: like, that and I, I, name, I, w- I wouldn't agree with what you're saying either uh, so <clears throat> you know people can hear and then they can really hear so you've got to hear the whole sermon you got to listen carefully. So then the Lord, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so the scripture says, God created man in his own image and the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And so God created man in his image and everyone who's downstream of Adam, which is all of us are created in the image and likeness of God. The difference now is that man has fallen. And he's sinful. And so you mentioned a pedophile or a homosexual or a transgender or a drunkard or a prostitute or an adulterer. And uh, they are not properly bearing the image of God, but they're still made in the image of God, which is why we should not discard such people. The Bible says, honor the king. It also says, honor all men. In what sense? They're image bearers. And so there should be a sense of compassion in our hearts if God has opened our eyes by his wonderful, magnificent, sovereign grace to believe on the Lord Jesus and to be regenerate so that we can embrace spiritual truth. We should have compassion in our hearts for anyone. You know, I I see this transgender person recently in a store and, you know, my, my heart just... I felt really sad for the person. And I thought, what's driving this? And now, of course, eighteen in the 18 to 23-year-old group, this just came out. They call them, I think, Generation Z. Uh, 16% say they are gay, homosexual, bisexual, or transgender. And this is kind of cool. It's attention-getting. And this is what a lot of young people are embracing. 16%. And we're not talking about the rest in that generation that are living sexually immoral and uh, just everything that was once nailed down is coming and glued. But do we reject them as people? No, God sent his son to die for them that they could be forgiven and have eternal life. So please listen to the sermons carefully and don't say things about me that aren't true because that's what you just did. Let's go to the next question. Well,
0: a uh, quick question. When we yeah. talk about man being made in the image of God. Right. That talks about the fact that we have some characteristics that the other animals don't have. We exactly. Have, we can pray to God. We have, a, we are sentient beings and things like that.
1: And I cover that every time I present the gospel at Community Bible Church and meet the pastor. And it's in my little booklet, The Five Steps to Christian Growth, that man, it's at the top of the page, is a unique creation of God. We're not some highly evolved, two-legged animal uh, we are distinct from the animal kingdom god breathed into Adam the breath of life and made him a living being a living soul and so you never see a dog or a cat on their knees in prayer it's just people so there are several aspects people who take the course i offer on anthropology one of the assignments is write a paper on what it means to be made in the image of god and there are several aspects for instance we're free moral agents we're not machines. God gave man the capacity to choose. So he said, to Adam, from any tree in the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat from it you shall surely die. So the Bible clearly affirms we're made in the Imago Dei. But in saying that, it's not saying that we're you know little gods like a Kenneth Copeland would say. Uh, God is God, man is man, and never the two shall meet. Uh, there's only one God, and we're not little gods in the sense that uh, we are, in terms of judges and being given authority. And Jesus uses it in that respect, little elohims, but we're not gods in that we possess deity, or or we, you know, take on some aspect of. Uh, attributes that are true only of the living God himself. But fair question. Let's go to the next one.
0: Okay, we actually have uh, two different questions, but they're very much alike. So I'm going to read them both first. Richard L. writes, "Uh, I really enjoy your ministry. Curious, are you Calvinist? And then Gina writes, what exactly is Reformed? Are John Piper and John MacArthur Reformed? Is Community Bible Church Reformed?
1: Well, uh, let me first deal with the uh, question from Richard, am I a Calvinist? And usually when people ask this, they are basically asking, do I believe in the doctrine of election the way John Calvin believed in the doctrine of election? But understand, Calvinism is a much broader theology. If you spoke to any Calvinist today and you reduced their theology just to their soteriology— that is their doctrine of salvation. They would say you've grossly uh, underrepresented uh, us in terms of what we believe and what we stand for. Uh, John Calvin was obviously a highly influential Protestant reformer. He's born in France. He's educated in civil law. He eventually fled Catholic, uh, fled Roman Catholic France and he moves to Geneva Institute, uh, in Geneva, Switzerland, where he wants to institute a number of his reforms. And let me just say, a lot of the things that he taught were absolutely true and right. He affirmed the doctrine of the Trinity, that there is one God who exists in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. He affirmed that Jesus' death was substitutionary and sufficient to pay the full debt of our sin, that man cannot add to it. And so the uh, solas of the Reformation, like sola gratia, sola fide, faith alone, grace alone, he definitely affirmed. He taught that the scripture must be our final authority. Scripture alone, sola scriptura. With that said, how he understood certain aspects of scripture were different. Take for instance his ecclesiology. John Calvin believed that the church had replaced Israel, and I think that that thinking in his Heart originated through a Roman Catholic influence that he grew up in. Remember, at one point, he's studying to become a Roman Catholic priest. And John Calvin is being taught by the Roman Catholic Church that God is done with national Israel, that the church, the body of Christ is represented in the Roman Catholic institution is the new Israel. Calvin took that and he said, well, That's true, but it's not represented in institutional Roman Catholicism. It's represented amongst any born-again believer, and he didn't view Roman Catholics as born-again because there is a clear and definitive denial of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, which one must embrace in order to become a Christian. So because he viewed the church as the new Israel, it influences doctrine of the church— he had a um, he had a structure that went beyond the local church. So, in the truest sense, he didn't believe, say, as Baptists do, in local church autonomy. Uh, he took um, circumcision. If you've read his Institutes, in the argument that well, the first generation of men, Abraham and his household, who were circumcised, were adults, and then after that, God commanded. That process to be done on the eighth day. And he took that same thought and basically transferred it to the church. And he said, well, we're the new Israel. And so the first generation of believers were baptized by immersion. But now in covenant with God, we need to baptize our little infants. He He took infant baptism, which again, the Roman Catholic Church taught in his day, Uh, They said it washed away original sin and instilled salvation to the soul. But he put a different spin on it. But he still practiced in his ecclesia, the church, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. He still practiced infant baptism. So um, it affected every aspect of his theology. And I just gave you two dimensions in the doctrine of the church. He didn't view Israel as being significant. And because of that, by the way, that influenced his soteriology, his doctrine of election. So when he came to chapters like Romans 9, 10, and 11, since God's done with Israel, he said that this is really not teaching about physical, national Israel, but this is teaching about the church and how God deals with people. So he looks at Romans 9, and he's not seeing how God selected Israel as a nation in a unique, special way. But he says God is choosing individuals as a nation in a unique way, and so his doctrine of election. Um, In terms of his eschatology, because there's no future for Israel, he was a millennialist. The next event was the return of Jesus from heaven. Uh, Of course, he didn't write. I have a full set of Calvin's commentaries, and I have one on every book of the Bible except Revelation, because he didn't write one on Revelation, and I think part of that is because he didn't really know what to do with the book of Revelation. It's either futuristic from chapter 4 through 18, he wouldn't deny the futuristic aspect of Revelation 19, where Christ comes to the earth, uh, but he didn't know what to do with those intervening chapters uh, after you know, Christ addresses the seven churches of the Revelation, And that's because I think he was confused on the role that God had for Israel. So when you ask me, am I a Calvinist? I'm not in terms of many aspects of doctrine. But would I agree with him on his Christology? Yes. Um, On his pneumatology? Absolutely. On his soteriology aspects. So I would agree with him that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. But I would not agree with him that God chooses chooses Joe to go to heaven and he chooses uh, Jeff to go to hell. Um, And I don't believe that the Scripture teaches that. Do I believe in the doctrine of election? Of course I do. Every Christian does. Again, it comes down to how do you define those terms? God elected us. He chose us before the foundation of the world. The question becomes, on what basis does God choose us? And Calvin would just say, based on God's sovereign choice, and it has nothing to do with us. And basically, you know, said the only reason you could freely say yes to God is only because God freely said yes to you in the beginning. And all I would say is that God gives every man some aspect of revelation, we can't take any credit. For coming to christ there's not a spark left in the free will where independently of god we can come to the living god that's arminianism listen paul said you are dead in your trespasses and sins and dead people can't respond Uh, jesus said no one can come to the father unless the father draws him and so the spirit comes and works in the heart and he convicts the world of sin righteousness and judgment and what we do in response to his work becomes an issue of whether we're elect or not the elect or the whosoever will the non-elect or the whosoever won't and so you know i would i would differ with you know say john MacArthur here he would be dispensational and that he sees a future for israel people say what's dispensationalism take all the air out of the balloon. There's just a distinction between Israel and the church that God's not done with Israel, that as he used Israel to bring about the first coming, he's using Israel and will f- complete the process for the second coming through that nation of people. Um, but John Calvin, I mean, uh, John MacArthur has a similar view to the doctrine of election that Calvin does. And of course, one aspect of Calvinism today was that Christ didn't die for everyone, but only for a limited number of people. And so you would see that represented with a lot of Calvinists today, like R.C. Sproul, who just recently died a few years ago. He would have taught that, that Jesus didn't die for everyone. I think they're wrong, and I think you can demonstrate that even John Calvin didn't believe that, though it is certainly an aspect of Calvinistic doctrine today. Am I reformed? The second question. Well, I hope so. I mean, um, but again, that's a word that's been redefined. So today, it's kind of like the word charismatic. Pastor Carl, are you charismatic? Well, if you mean, am I charismatic in that I speak in tongues and think that you should speak in tongues and that this is a sign of a deeper work of the Spirit, absolutely not. That's just uh, confusion. It's not representing biblical truth. And it's undermining the miraculous nature of tongues as it was given in the New Testament. But if you're asking me, do I believe that God gives spiritual gifts to his church today? And I would say, absolutely. So in that sense, I'm a charismatic today. Uh, and, and so it's kind of sad that that, uh, that dimension of the body of Christ have robbed that term. And so have some with the term, are you a Reformed Christian? Today, if you mean, are you a Reformed Christian? Christian, do you believe what John Piper believes? That Israel is no more significant than Uganda. I don't believe that. I think Piper was wrong, and I think he was wrong on a lot of things. But he's my brother in Christ, and I'm going to spend eternity with him, and we're in agreement on a lot of things. Um, but if I'm reformed like John Piper, I'd say no. But am I reformed like I believe in the five souls of the Re- Reformation? Absolutely. So again you 've got to define terms. These are great questions, and again, this is why, in our courses that we offer in the Institute of Biblical Studies, we do a deep dive into these issues and look at them very, very carefully let 's go to the next question
0: eight four three five two five one eight five nine if you have a question on today 's Bible line, Scott from Harrison, Tennessee writes, "Where does the Bible encourage and or ordain?" the ceremonial marriage that we traditionally and culturally practice? Was the bill of divorcement allowed maybe because the Hebrews integrated this normal cultural practice of the nations, uh, Gentiles around them, into their Israelite lifestyle? And finally, isn't marriage a verbal contract of faith between a man and a woman and the Lord? Thank you.
1: Well, um, the Jewish wedding process is not the start of marriage itself. Ever before there was a Jewish nation, uh, God instituted marriage. The family was the very first thing that God instituted. Uh, We see in Genesis chapter 2, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs. And closed up the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then we read, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined or cleave to his wife. And the two shall become one. Now, it's interesting. When you come to verse 24, we have no quotation, and it's simply because these are not the words of Adam. These are the words of God. These are the words of the Holy Spirit flowing through the inspired quill of Moses when he pens this portion of Scripture. And God the Holy Spirit is reminding us that marriage is a divine institution for this reason, because God made Eve from Adam to be married, a man leaves his father and mother and will be joined to his wife and the two shall become one. And so verse 24 is really an interpretation of what is happening um, with this whole issue of marriage. And by the way, it's a very important verse. It's quoted four different times in the New Testament and God reminds us and repeats it Because he wants to underscore that marriage is not some institution that evolved, as the theistic evolutionists or the evolutionists is forced to argue. Uh, It didn't come, you know, out out of the swamp of evolution. It didn't come out of immorality. And some people got the bright idea, well, maybe we should codify this somehow. No, God himself ordained marriage listen, if there was not the first man and the first woman, and if people are just animals who procreated, then where did marriage originate? Um, You know, that those who embrace theistic evolution, which is, you know, utter heresy, um, and and I know we've got, you know, men like so-called apologists. I didn't want to use his name. I'm so disgusted with some of the things that he has said, especially recently. Um, You cannot hold to theistic evolution and hold to a biblical view of marriage. God's Word specifically says he creates the first man and the first woman. Well, what did Adam and Eve know about leaving father and mother? They had no father and mother. God is instituting marriage as we know it, and so among other things, what you're looking at here in Genesis 2.24 is the authority for a civil religious ceremony of marriage. Now, I will say, parenthetically, that in some parts of the world, especially now in Western Europe, that has become so secularized, so agnostic, so atheistic in many ways— where the churches have just, for the most part, become more and more museums. Only 5% of the people in Western Europe even go to church anymore. Uh, There are some high points, like in uh, the United Kingdom, where approximately 10% go. There's places like Italy, the Roman Catholic uh, Empire and capital, where only 3% go. But most people just don't even go to church. So how do they get married? Well, even there, they have to go to a court or to what we might consider a justice of the peace, or the local civil magistrate, and they sign a document. And so there's even there a recognition of a public uh, confession that two people are committing themselves to one another. So marriage is instituted ever before you get into all the um, issues of the Jewish marriage, marriage ceremony that this brother has brought up in a couple questions. God himself institutes it. I had a young Marine some years back who said to me, well, I'm going to marry so-and-so and her daddy's a preacher, but he doesn't want us to get a marriage license because he argues that the civil authorities have nothing to do with marriage. Well, they don't in one sense in that it's not the civil authorities that marry two people. It's God who marries two people, but when two people say we're going to live together as husband and wife, they are married in God's eyes, and there's that public declaration that is made, and Christ acknowledged that at the wedding of Cana. He went to a wedding. He didn't say, well, you know, you just—no, there was a public declaration that was made at the wedding of Cana, and so I I said to him, you should get a marriage license, because under U.S. law, we're required to get a marriage license, and they are doing that in the protection of marriage itself and in protection of when children potentially enter into that union between a man and a woman. And, of course, even in most states where uh, you have two people living together and they don't get a marriage license, depending on the state, it's between five in South Carolina, seven years, if you live together with the same woman, then you are declared husband and wife by the state. Um, So these are important issues, but God institutes marriage and it's between a man and a woman. It's Adam and Eve. It's not Adam and Steve. It's not Eve and Ethel. Uh, You can call it Whatever you want, two transgender people married, you can call two lesbians married, you can call two homosexuals married. And yesterday we came out with a new thing where you've got uh, three men who are in a so-called polyamorous marriage and they are given freedom to adopt a child. You can call it whatever you want but it's not a marriage. A marriage is a public declaration between a man and a woman where a new home is started. So there's a leaving and there's a cleaving.
0: All right. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Sandy from Beaufort writes, what does what does Dr. Brogy think of governor McMaster's removing the last call restrictions for bars and restaurants? She's not heard anything through the church, by the way, just got a bulletin that the, uh, Governor McMaster has uh, said that effective next Monday, anyone 55 and above can get the shot.
1: That's good to know. So if you're 55 and above and you haven't had the shot, you can run down that road next week. Uh, Now, beyond that public service announcement, Governor McMaster is one who has to enforce the laws of the state. Doesn't necessarily mean he agrees with every law. He didn't agree with the law that was governing abortion in South Carolina. And that's why when he ran for office, he said, look, I really would love to see a bill on my desk that would protect life in the womb. He said that four years ago to a group of us who are pastors up there when we're invited into the governor's mansion. And when that bill came on his desk, he signed it just as he promised. So he's required to fulfill the laws of the state. And I don't know what his personal convictions are on the use of alcohol. I don't know him that well. But he has lifted uh, the restrictions on restaurants. And most restaurants today now sell alcohol. And I'm told even Cracker Barrel's moving in that direction where they're going to now sell alcohol and lose that family touch that they had had. Um, So, you know, if you're a Christian— You know, do I have a problem with you going to a restaurant that serves alcohol? Not at all. I'm getting ready to meet with the new president of Palmetto Family in just a few minutes, and we're going to a place where they sell alcohol. Now, I'm not going to drink it. But if the waitress comes to our table, I hope to be able to invite her to church and win her to Jesus. And a lot of people I've invited just in a restaurant or behind the counter waiting on me have come to church and in the process have come to Christ because of someone's invitation. Um, so he's just um, loosening the restrictions that COVID had, but it's not against the law in South Carolina. Prohibition uh, has not been in place for um, well not, but decades and decades, almost 100 years. So um, in either case, um, he's just doing what he is constitutionally sworn to do.
0: Tim from Bluffton writes, what are your thoughts on Clarence Larkin's Dispensational Truth book? I once owned it, but after 28 years in the military, it's come up missing. I've been listening to your study of Revelation and would like to delve into more on eschatology and thought it would be good to reinvest into this book along with your STS study. Thoughts?
1: Well, Clarence Larkin was kind of an interesting guy. He was an engineer, architect. Uh, which would explain some of the diagrams that he produced. I mean, you talk about uh, detailed diagrams. There's few people who could draw with the kind of expertise and detail that he did. He was raised Episcopalian and became somewhat disillusioned with the Episcopalians of his day because as he read and studied Scripture, he could not see the basis for... Um, paedo or infant baptism. And so he ended up becoming a Baptist, I think, in his early 30s. He leaves the Episcopal Church, and it's not that long after that he's actually ordained to become a Baptist pastor. But what he's known for is this work that you mentioned, and I actually have it. Uh, there was a person in our church that uh, her daddy had a first-generation copy I wanted to know if I would like to look at it, and I said, well, I'd love to see a first edition, and would you allow me to Xerox it since it is permissible to Xerox it? And she said, of course, and I did, and I made a copy, and I, I have it. Um, do I agree with it? Uh, there are some things that he was exploring that I think he was right on. Uh, I, there are some issues that I don't think he was right on, but on the big picture, yes. Again, he saw there was a future for Israel, that just as God used Israel to bring the first coming, that God was going to use Israel to bring about the second coming. He believed that there was a literal coming seven-year tribulation period, as Jesus taught, that that's not historical, that that was not all fulfilled before 70 AD, as many amillennialists and those in the Reformed camp teach today, but it's still in the future that Revelation 4 through the end of the book is all futuristic, uh, that it hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. And so you will see those convictions communicated in some of the intricate charts and drawings that he wrote. Um, with that said, I he had some really, I think, bizarre uh, drawings in there, too, where he developed a whole theology around pyramids that was unique to him. Uh, He had a small following with it. I think he was just wrong. I think he read into the scriptures and was guilty in that realm of eisegesis. Exegesis is where you read out what the scriptures plainly say. Eisegesis is when you read in. So with that said, do I think you should go out and buy his book? Probably not. It's not that you know, life-changing, where you can't get some of that same information. And David Jeremiah, who we play on this station, he did a book some years back and basically took Clarence Larkin's drawings and just modified them and simplified them and used a lot of them in his own work. Anyway, fair question. Let's go to the next one.
0: All right. Walter from Paintsville, Kentucky would write the following. First, I'd like to say thank you and God bless you. I found you a few months ago on YouTube. Your scriptural knowledge is filling in and answering a lot of doctrinal details for me. My question is, are we directly a part of the new covenant as stated in Jeremiah, or is Jeremiah only speaking of when Christ sets up his kingdom and fulfills his promises to Israel?
1: Well, it's a good, good question. I suppose if you lived before Jesus came on the earth and had appointed apostles and apostolic delegates to give us the New Testament, you might conclude that, oh, this is just for Israel. But remember, even Israel was to be a light to the Gentiles, and even Israel was to proclaim the promises that God gave concerning salvation. That's why in the Abrahamic Covenant, God can say to Abraham, through your lineage, through you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. How can all the nations of the world be blessed through Abraham? Because through Abraham comes the Savior of the world. So let me just read the New Covenant. There are two central passages, one in Ezekiel and the other in Jeremiah 31 that you reference. And it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And we may call that the Mosaic Covenant. My covenant which they broke although I was a husband to them declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. And Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six, will also quote this not exactly in the same way. He's a different prophet. He lives after Jeremiah. He lives during the time of the exile. But he uses the same terminology, though in some ways it's a little more vivid in that he says God will take your heart of stone and he'll turn it into a soft, pliable heart of flesh. And that's why new covenant believers are different from old covenant believers. In our Bible, in the broadest sense, the word diatheke, testament, uh is the word for covenant and so our bible divides in the broadest sense into two halves the old covenant and the new covenant or the old testament and the new testament this is the covenant which i will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord i will put my law within them and on their heart i will write it and i shall be their god and they shall be my people They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying Know the Lord, why? For they will all know me, from the greatest of them to from the least of them to the greatest of them. And so this is a different aspect of how God is going to deal with men. You have got men like Moses, who seem to have a very special relationship with the Lord God, and he's a very humble man. That's how he's described in Scripture. And he has a very special relationship with the Lord. But now this very special relationship is going to be broadened to all from the least to the greatest. And even this new covenant is going to be greater than anything Moses ever knew. And so from the greatest to the least of them declares the Lord. Why can this happen? Because or for it's causal, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So this is why... Jesus, again, could say that there was never born a man from a woman's womb that was greater than John. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. Because John died, he was beheaded before the enactment of the new covenant. He didn't live to see its beautiful promise. And so it was not till the Lord Jesus in time and space made a full payment for sin, ascended to the Father that he might send the Spirit, the promise of the Father, and that's what he did, that the new covenant is fully realized. And the fact that this is not just for Jews is, A, Jews were to be a witness to the Gentiles, B, salvation, and this is part of salvation, which Jesus affirmed at the Lord's table, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is a new deal. This is the New Testament that Jeremiah and Ezekiel and others spoke about. And we celebrate that not just as Jews in the church, but as Gentiles in the church. And the writer of the Hebrews quotes it as being fulfilled in our day as well. Um, Behold, days are coming, he writes in Hebrews chapter 8. And he's quoting the prophet Jeremiah when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel. And I'll be their God. And and he says, this is today. And he quotes it again in Hebrews chapter 10. This is the covenant 1016 that I will make with them after those days. I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And, of course, he's arguing for the superiority of the new covenant that some of these Hebrew Christians who are members of the church we're ignoring by practicing some of the old testament practices so yes the new covenant is for both jew and gentile we experience the same blessings of salvation and that's what the acts reveals remember what peter was so blown away with in acts 10 and we know this because he reports it in acts 11 to the elders in the church at jerusalem and he said hey look they these gentiles cornelius and his household and his friends and his relatives they received the holy spirit in the exact same way that we did you see what blew their mind was not that a gentile could be saved but that a gentile could be on the same ground as a jew because the jew were god's covenant people and paul of course reminds us that the the dividing wall between jew and gentile has been removed And so we experience the same blessings of salvation. Great question. I appreciate it.
0: All right, very good. Mary from Sydney, Maine asks, Should a pastor's amillennialist beliefs and teachings concern my husband and me?
1: Well, yes and no. Obviously, amillennialism and premillennialism both cannot be correct. Premillennialism says that Jesus Christ will come back pre or before his millennial reign. Amillennialism, uh, alpha kind of negates it and says there is no millennial reign of Messiah where he will literally rule for a thousand years. And again, this is all rooted in their view of Israel. um, um, Let me go back to Jeremiah 31, where I was just a moment ago, where we just read the new covenant. And the fact that God is not done with Israel right after he says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, and I'm going to write my law into their hearts and their lawless deeds. I'll remember no more, and I'll forgive them and their iniquity and so forth. The next verse says, thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea, so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then and only then, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. In other words, he is reaffirming the Abrahamic covenant that is an unconditional covenant, is underscored in Genesis 15, that had nothing to do with Israel's obedience when God walked between those animals and established a unilateral covenant with the people of Israel. So as long as the sun is in the sky, the moon is there, the stars is there, I'm committed to Israel. If you can measure the earth and the universe, then I can drop this covenant. But you can't do that. So this is a you know a, a covenant that is for keep. So the, the concept of Messiah coming and ruling and reigning on the earth is not a New Testament concept. That's taught in the Old Testament the coming of the kingdom, and ever before the revelation was written, at the ascension, the apostles are asking, Lord, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And if, if God was done with Israel, this would have been a perfect time to say, no, I'm done with Israel. We're only going to work now through the church, and there is no coming kingdom. No, God's going to keep his promises to Israel, and he will literally rule and reign the length of the kingdom being a thousand years is taught in the New Testament. But the concept, you know, the scripture says that Messiah is going to come. He's going to plant his feet on the Mount of Olives, split it in two. Uh, fresh water somehow is going to leave the Temple Mountain, flow all the way to the Dead Sea, which is dead totally. And men are going to fish in it and dry their nets next to it. Prophecies like that have never happened, but they will happen. So all I would say to you is like if you go into a town, And people ask me this sometimes because they go into a town and they can't find a good church. And they say, well, there's this, you know, conservative Bible-believing Presbyterian church. But, you know, we don't really buy into their infant baptism and their eschatology that there is no coming reign of Messiah on the earth. And their view of end times, just the only event left is Jesus' second coming. And there's no coming Antichrist and no tribulation and, and the rapture and the second coming are one simultaneous event. I said, look, if that's the only church in town and you've got brothers and sisters in Christ, you've got a couple of options. You can either drive away to a further town. We have people who drive 50 miles to come to church here on Sunday morning because they're so frustrated with all the compromise that is all over the map. Um, Or you could find some like-minded believers and plant a church. Or you could go to that church and, without being a divisive agent, just agree to disagree and love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Because homillennialism and premillennialism, infant versus uh, post-conversion baptism, uh, are not tests of fellowship. They're tests of obedience, in my view. I don't think you can um, understand post-conversion baptism and say, well, my infant baptism is fine. While it's symbolic— baptism is more than a symbol. It's an act of obedience. And that's why 90% of Christians worldwide practice post-conversion baptism. But it doesn't mean that I couldn't fellowship with an R.C. Sproul or others who practice infant baptism. So um, either pedo-baptism or credo-baptism is correct. They both can't be correct. With that said, um you know, you've got to weigh this carefully and you need to teach your children what you think the scriptures are saying. Um, I was talking to my son who's an attorney up in Washington, D.C., Jeremy, and he said that I was talking to uh, that. We have a friend named Tim and and Tim said, you know, it's a really bad day to be an amillennialist. And I and we were kind of joking. And he said, yeah, it is, because all the things that premillennialists have been teaching as Futuristic and that will come true are coming true. God is setting the stage for the return of His Son from heaven. Anyway, let's go to the next question.
0: Okay, I think we've got three minutes left. Time to answer this one question from Emmanuel in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. What do you think about the Four Square Ministry?
1: Well, the Four Square Gospel Church, um, I think, has some problems in my view. It was started by uh, Amy McPherson. And uh, it was founded in the 1920s, the same year, if I remember, my mother was born, 1927. Um, And so she was kind of a woman preacher. So right off out of the chute, there was error, in my opinion, in that you've got a woman assuming a role that God has restricted to men. Men and women are equal, but equalness does not mean sameness. And so this is what's happening because the church, the body of Christ, is saying equalness equals sameness. We're spl- spreading that poison now into the culture at broad, broad, and we're saying that you know with all these gender issues they're they're okay. That's part of our own fault for rejecting what God plainly has said. Um, they put an unhealthy emphasis on divine healing uh, using. James chapter 5 but if you will stay with me and my exposition of the book of James will eventually come to James 5 and we'll see what it says and what it doesn't say they also put very firmly uh, this idea of speaking in tongues as a second deeper work of the grace of God and uh, they have a structure even that I think is unbiblical again I, I don't think there's uh anything above the local church in our day the apostles were above the local church and they still are in the sense that we have apostolic authority found in the inerrant infallible word of god but they have a board of directors uh, jack hayford i don't i think he's still alive he's got to be in his late 80s uh, he was the head of it. and so, so I don't think a whole lot about it. I don't think it's a healthy model that a Christian who takes the scriptures seriously should follow. We're out of time, but thanks so much for being with us today here on The Bible Line. Have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.